And in our morning services, uh, we've been going through the life of Abraham uh, in our all-in service this morning. We're going to be doing something of a recap over the last three weeks, so we're going to be looking at Genesis 12 to 13. And a question that we've been considering uh, over these weeks is, what is faith? What is faith? Now, Romans, Romans 4 describes it like this. It says, he, that's Abraham, is our father uh, in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. So what is faith? Now, faith isn't positive thinking. Faith isn't a denial of the situation. Now, we read here in verse 19, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Faith involves facing the facts. But it's not just facing the facts, it's facing the facts in the light of who God is. God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So this morning, as we do this recap, as we go through Genesis 12 to 13, we're going to be facing the facts. But we're going to be facing the facts in the light of who God is. And so there are kind of two questions that I want you to be thinking through as we go through each of these passages. And that's... Well, what's the situation? What's it mean to face the facts? And who is God in this situation? So up to this point uh, in Genesis, we're painted with something of a bleak picture. Humanity have rejected God's rule and God's reign. Paradise has been lost. The earth has been filled with violence. And God's plan, God's purpose for humanity to reflect him, to fill the earth with his goodness, seems to have been thrown off track. And yet here in Genesis 12, God steps in and he gets things going again. So he calls Abram, who later becomes known as Abraham, and says, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you, as we jump to the end of verse 3, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the language that God used originally for humanity in Genesis 1. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. It's going to be this blessing so that God's blessing fills the whole earth, the goodness of God filling the whole earth. It's a great, it's a glorious plan, isn't it, on paper? But let's face the facts. God doesn't have a lot to work with. So as Rich pointed out the other week, a lot of the names in Abraham's family... Our names associated with moon worship, Nahor, Milka, Sarai. Even Abraham's name, it means exalted father. Now we've seen in Genesis the result of humanity exalting themselves. That's the reason that the world is in the mess that it is. This is not the best pedigree to work from. And furthermore, then in 1130... We're told of Sarai, Abram's wife, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. This doesn't bode well for becoming a great nation. 
This is like planning to build some great shining white Lego citadel and all you've got at your disposal is a handful of grey and black bricks. Let's face the facts here. It's a nice plan. There's no way it's going to happen. And then we need to ask the question, but who is God? Who is God? The God who gives life to the dead, who calls into being things that were not. Have a look at verse 2. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, Abraham, you will become a great nation. As though all the potential lay within Abraham himself. What does it say? God says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The blessing may flow through Abraham, but its origin is in God. The blessing comes because of God. We face the facts. The situation is hopeless, and yet the reason for hope is because who God is. And these words then to Abram, they set the course for the rest of the Bible. The Bible, 66 books, you know, written by various people over various people, uh, times, and yet it's all coming together as this one unified message. The message of the Bible is this unified message, how God is working to bring about his blessing on this world. A blessing to a broken and to a rebellious world. And it all points forward to Jesus. The descendant, one who's come from the line of Abraham. The one who overcomes the world. The one through whom ultimately this blessing comes from. Jesus lived, he suffered, he died for our sins. He rose and he ascended. He overcame the world in order to secure God's blessing for God's people. So the future is already secure. It's already built. It's already done because Jesus has overcome. He's broken that cycle of decay and death. That's no longer how the story ends. Because of Jesus' resurrection, he is set into motion. He is guaranteed the next and the final chapter. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, it's one where every page is better than the one before. It's a chapter where the cycle of destruction, decay, and death no longer feature. That's all behind. Now, what lies ahead, what is guaranteed, what is in this next chapter is resurrection and his life. And so if anyone is in Christ, is new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And try as we might, we cannot build paradise. But we can enter into it. We enter in through Jesus Christ, the one who's overcome. And so a question for us this morning is when we look at the brokenness of this world, now where do we place our hope? Where are you placing your hope? In humanity? Whose first response to a pandemic is to go out and bulk buy toilet rolls? Or is your hope in Jesus Christ, the one who has 
overcome. The one who is raised from the dead, who's defeated death, and who reigns above all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome, and we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may see, that we may know more of the hope to which you have called us. Lord, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people. Lord, and your great power, that power that has raised Jesus far above all power and authority and all rule in this age, in all the ages to come. Lord, that we would see, that we would know the certain and secure hope that is in Christ Jesus, that we would not look to ourselves, but that we would lift up our eyes to him. Amen. So God has called Abraham, and he's called him to go to the land of Canaan. And through Abraham, he's going to bring blessing to the nations. And yet here in this passage, we see Abraham in Egypt. And rather than bringing a blessing, bringing a curse. So there's a famine in the land. Abraham goes down to Egypt and Abraham's afraid for his life. So we read in verse 11, as he's about to enter Egypt, he says to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. And so as the officials come, as they see Sarai, Abraham says, oh, no, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And so what do they do? Verse 15, Abraham's, uh, sorry, when Pharaoh's officials, when they saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. And as a result of all this, in verse 17, uh, we read that the Lord inflicts serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So if we're going to summarize something of what's happening here in chapter 12, we could put it like this, couldn't we? Abraham deceives. And then the officials, what they do, they see Sarai, and then they take Sarai into Pharaoh's household. And as a result of Abraham's deception, a curse is brought about on the people of Egypt. Does that pattern sound familiar to any of you? See, I hear that my mind goes back to somewhere else where I remember a similar thing happening before. See, in Genesis 3, the serpent deceives. And Eve sees, and she takes what is forbidden. It's the same language that's used. And as a result, instead of there being blessing, there's the experience of a curse. And I think this account here in Genesis 12 is retold in such a way that our mind is meant to go back to Genesis 3. And when we look at the parallels, it's shocking where we find Abraham. At the beginning of this chapter, chapter 12, God has called Abraham out of this pagan way of life. And here, really just a few verses in, the life of Abraham is reflecting more the life of Satan than the life of God. 
It's like trying to make an award-winning cup of coffee and all you've got is dirt and polluted water to work. Now, perhaps that seems a bit harsh. Now, Abraham's afraid of his life. I mean, he's just looking after number one, isn't he, really? And yet, see how the Bible presents that. That is sin. That is a satanic way. That is in complete contradiction to the ways of God. And when we see something as stark as this, you know, let's just face the fact, Abraham has messed up big time here. I mean, this is it. It was done. It should be game over. This is the end of the story. And then we need to ask, who is God in this situation? The God who gives life to the dead, who calls into being things that were not. Because God's plans and God's purposes are greater than Abraham's deceit. God's mercy is greater than Abraham's sin. Just notice in verse 10 of chapter 12. Abraham goes down. Abraham goes down to Egypt. Abraham goes down. But what happens by the time we get to chapter 13, verse 1? God has intervened. And Abraham is brought back up. That's who God is. Now we need to face the facts here. As with Abraham, the depths of our sin are greater than we know. And perhaps as you hear that this morning, you already know something of that. You're already aware of the depths of sin in your life. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I've sunk down so low, that's me, that there's no way that I can get back up. I'm finished. Like Abraham here, it's game over. But who is God? to the God who brings back up. You may be down at the depths of the lowest depths that you can get to, and even then you haven't plumbed the depths of where our hearts really are. There is no way that you can get back up, but God is the one. God is the one who brings people back up. Because as with Abraham, God has intervened, and God has intervened by coming down. He came down to us as we've already sung. Jesus, the one fully God and fully man, who came to bear us in the depths of our depravity. And so that there, as he hung on the cross, bearing our sin, that the right and just judgment of God against our sin is meted out on the body of Christ. So as Jesus dies, he cries out with a loud voice, It is finished! It's done. It's complete. It is paid in full. There is nothing more that needs to be paid. There is no sin that is too dark. There is no stain that is too deep that cannot be removed by the self-sacrifice of Jesus. And so Jesus calls us to repent. To turn to him, the one who takes away our sin. 
And so another question for us to consider this morning is what direction are you facing? Are you turned towards sin? Willingly cherishing it. Are you turned towards sin and hopelessly despairing of it? Or are you turned towards Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world? Let's take a moment to consider that question as we come and pray. God keeps, again, these two questions. What's the situation? And who is God in this situation? Uh, in this passage, then, we see, I think, something of faith in action. Abraham and his nephew, nephew Lot, they have a lot of possessions, so much so, we're told, that the land cannot support them. And this quarreling starts to break out between the two different herdsmen. You can kind of imagine the herdsmen, they're looking at this situation. We've got lots of flocks. There's a limited pasture. And so there's this competition, this conflict. Who's going to get the best land? And Abram intervenes. And his actions suggest that he's looking at the situation somewhat differently. Now he views the situation but in the light of God. And we see here faith in action. So instead of taking sides with his herdsmen, Abram says to Lot, Look, let's, let's not you and I fall out about this. I'm not going to take sides with this. In fact, you go uh, and you take your pick. Lot gets given first choice. And so Lot does, you know, what anyone would do. Verse 10, he looked around. He looked around and he saw, it's that word again, he looked around it and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And so Lot's decision is informed by what he immediately sees. This looks like a good land. It promises life. It promises paradise. Now, of course, we know that's not the case, isn't it? In verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 13, now the people in Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So Lot looked and he saw what promised paradise and yet it would become a pit of despair. So in 2 Peter it speaks about how Lot lives in torment as he goes and lives in the city with wicked people. It looked like it promises life and yet it's soon going to perish. We're told in verse 10, it's before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going to be destroyed. And when Lot is given the choice, he chooses what looks best to him. Which in many ways makes sense. That's what anyone would do. But Abraham's choice is informed by something better, by the promise of God. And so already earlier in Genesis 12, verse 7, When the Lord appeared to Abraham, he said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So when the herdsmen, they start this arguing and squabbling, Abraham is freed from that. Abraham is free to let Lot choose. There's no need for him to fight for the land. Why? Because whatever happens, he knows ultimately 
God will provide. God has made that promise. God will keep that promise. And so in verse 15, God restates the promise. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And we live in a world where people squabble, where they fight to possess, to get a hold of that which seems best, that which seems to promise life. And paradise is offered to us in a whole manner of ways. It's not necessarily land. That rarely in our culture probably is it land. But paradise is offered by that lifestyle, by that career, by that relationship. You need to have this, you need to do that, you need to possess that. And when you do, you will find happiness, you will find fulfillment. And these things, they look good, they look appealing to the eye. It looks good in our own eyes. And yet the ultimate end of that becomes distress, even destruction. And yet God has promised something better, as he did with Abram. I has not seen, Scripture tells us. I forget what looks good to the eye, but eye has not seen, ear has not heard. No human mind has considered what God has in store for those who love him. There is no sacrifice that you can make that is worth comparing with what God has in store for you. You cannot outgive God. Ella, did you miss out? No. That was just chocolate. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, human mind has not conceived what God has in store for us. And the inheritance that he has kept is kept and is secure by God, is one that doesn't fade, it doesn't spoil, it doesn't perish. It is kept, it is secure by God, it is guaranteed by Jesus Christ because he is the one who has overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. See, we will face trouble. We will get caught up in conflict as people seek to fight for their idea of paradise. There will be things that you will miss out on in this life. As people seek to take what is best. In this world, you will have trouble. Faith means facing the facts, but it's not facing the facts in the cold light of day. It is facing the facts in the glorious light of Christ. And at the end of the day, there is no one who puts their faith in Christ who misses out. There is no one who is put to shame despite present experiences. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, because he has overcome the world. Let's pray.